My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you guys are with us this morning. Uh, we are, Lord willing, going to finish up Mark chapter 15 today, so I am excited about that. So let's, uh, as we do each week, let's read through that entire chapter. Uh, so we'll start in Mark 15, 1. Uh, and just as a reminder, uh, if, if you if you got Mark open uh, today in... Um, Today in Mark is Mark 11. So 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 all happen in the space of a week in Mark's gospel. And the date that we were in Mark 11 was uh, 1970. No, um, it, <laughs> it, it was a minute ago, right? Uh, so... So 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 all happen in a week. And then 16 is just one day, like the, really the morning of one day. So, uh, so when we talk about Mark has this ridiculously fast pace, the first 10 chapters, yes. And then we really begin to pump the brakes. Uh, more than one commentator that I read talked about the gospel of Mark being a 10-chapter introduction to the Passion Week. And I was like, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, so today is the last day, which, <clears throat> as Providence would have it, uh, we actually, in today's text, put Jesus in the grave. I'm just saying, you know. Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> and as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark 15. <clears throat> I hope these words have become precious to you as we have walked through Mark's gospel. It's the story of our king. So in Mark 15, we come to the last section, verses 42 through 47 today. And the literary and structural observations I have written, Pilate plays his last part, and Joseph of Arimathea buries the body of Jesus. But before we start with verse 42, there's one other verse I want you to be aware of. So if you've got your entire Bible, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Because I want us to make sure we understand the unsaid pace that's going on in the background. This would have been probably too much detail for Mark to include. You know, Mark's not a, he's not the detail guy, right? This would have been too much detail for Mark to include in his gospel. Uh, but in verses 22 and 23, 
And I'll, I'll give a bit of context here because you, you, you might be tempted to read this a very specific way and it's, it's not exactly the way you might be tempted to read it. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, comma, and you hang him on a tree. So the, the death is not hanging on a tree. The death would have almost exclusively been what? Like, how did, how did, what did the law say was the primary way that someone that was guilty of something that required uh, execution? Stoning. That's absolutely right. You'd have been stoned. You would have hung him on a tree as a display for anyone to see this is what happens when you do this. Right? So this is the, the publicity side of the execution. Right? So if you, if you thought that like, media outlets showing up at prisons at midnight to cover inmates who got executed was a new thing, no. They just used to use a tree. Okay? So when we fast forward through the lens of we know Christ was crucified on a tree, we sometimes can like backward fit what our expectations are into the text. So I want to make sure you understood. Nowhere in the law do you kill somebody by hanging them on a tree. Like that's, not, that's not how that worked. So if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is what? Cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So when we fast forward to Mark chapter 15, right? So what hour is he crucified? You remember? 9 a.m. And darkness happens when? At noon. And he dies very shortly after three. The clock has started. They got to get him buried before sundown. Okay? So keep this in the back of your mind as we walk through verses 42 through 47 because Joseph of Arimathea has a lot to do. <laughs> okay? So... Let's look at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation. Now, evening is a, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a super fuzzy word in the New Testament. It can mean anything. If you look at your definition there on page 539, it can mean anything from afternoon or nightfall. But from the context and from what we know about history, we believe this would have been early afternoon, sometime between 3 and 6, right? Maybe toward the, even the, the later part of that. So when evening had come, and this is, right, this is Friday evening. Just make sure we're all aware <laughs> what the timeline is here. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, you may be thinking, what is, what is the day of preparation? Well, it's, it's the day you get ready. That is, and, and these little explainers are one more reason why we think that not all of Mark's audience would have been really observant, understanding what's going on with all the religious rules associated with Judaism. That is the day before the Sabbath. I, I love this Greek word. It's pro-sabbaton. You're like, oh, I think I, could, I think I could back into that, right? Pro, before, sabbaton, feels like Sabbath. Got it. Yeah, there we go. So day before the Sabbath. And remember, what, what time does the new day start for a Jew? 
sundown. When the sun goes down, new day starts. That's when Saturday starts. Now, if you're wondering, well, if he got... If he died on Friday and he, he rises from the dead on Sunday, how in the world is that three days? Well, any part of the day would have been counted as a day. So if he was in the grave for 10 minutes before the sun went down on Friday, before Saturday started, that's a day. Saturday's a day. Sunday's a day. Counting a couple of thousand years ago was not nearly as rigorous as it is today. Like, I have a device on my wrist that synchronizes itself to an atomic clock and a server in, I think, Denver. Like, it's, like, it's, un it's ridiculous how precise we are with things. Like, we start at 9.07. It's just weird, right? So when we talk about evening had come, just... I, I, want you to, I want you to feel like these words are kind of squishy and they're very flexible. There are specific words for getting far more exact than this, and Mark chooses not to use it. So just want to make sure we ease into this. All right, so when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea. All right, so if you had your map, you are not going to find the city of Arimathea on your map, mostly because we have no idea where Arimathea actually is. The best guess is that it's a city called uh, Rama Thealeon, I believe is how you pronounce it. And the Aramathea, the Rama, may be some type of a mispronunciation slash slur slash shorthand, longhand way of saying this other city. Like, honestly. That's as good as all the commentators have. <laughs> that's as close as they can pick it. And if that's true, it's about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. So there you go. So, but it, we, we do know that it was a city in, uh, in Israel. Like we, that, we feel very confident that was, this is an Israelite. So Joseph of Arimathea. So does Joseph of Arimathea show up in any of the Gospels? Yes, he does. He actually shows up in all the other Gospels. Because, uh, let's see, Jessica's on. Excellent. Chain of custody. This is what we're talking about, chain of custody. So in Matthew's gospel, he shows up in Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60. Matthew 27, 57 through 60. And Matthew describes him as rich. And Matthew also describes him as a disciple of Jesus who owned a new tomb. You're like, well, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the rich and the owned a new tomb go hand in hand, right? Poor people didn't get tombs, like, full stop. They certainly didn't get new tombs. So let me give you a little bit about the geography of, of uh, Jerusalem. So right next to Jerusalem, uh, and this happened several hundred years before the life of Jesus, it was basically a, like a, they wouldn't have called it a rock quarry at that point, but it was functionally a rock quarry, right? So to build all these different things, they, they dug all of this rock up, and there's a bit of a, like a rock face on the outside of Jerusalem. So a really expensive way, almost a showy way, to protect you and your family's remains would be to dig into the rock and create an opening. And these things could be enough for one person. Uh, one of the commentators I read said he went to Israel and he was in a tomb that uh, had 60 family members in it. You're like, 60? So I don't, 
and what you have as far as the size in your mind, but they could be very small, they could be very big. The idea would be you put a body in, usually laid on top of a, like a, a cut-out piece of rock, and then once the body decomposes, you go in, you take the bones, you put the bones in a smaller box, an ossuary box, and then the box gets stored away somewhere inside that tomb. So this way you can actually have lots and lots and lots of family, because you, like, you wouldn't put somebody who's not your family in your family tomb. So this is, this is the mindset that Mark's readers would have had when hearing about a tomb. So this is what we, what we learned from Matthew. Luke describes him as good and righteous. And I want to flip over to Luke. So Luke is Luke 22, 50 through 55. Luke 22, 50 through 55. Nope, that's not right. Luke 23, I can't read my own handwriting. Luke 23, 50 through 55. Now there's a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. That's how we know it was in Israel. So thank you, Dr. Luke. <laughs> Luke for the win with the details, right? He was a member of the council. What council would we be talking about? Sanhedrin. A good and righteous man. Whoa, record scratch. Break the fourth wall. Look directly into the camera. What is going on here? A good and righteous member of the Sanhedrin? We're going to need to go reconcile this with Mark here in a minute. Who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, if some of your brains are going, wait, 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 wait. I thought Mark said, yeah, we're going to talk about that. So does Luke put this guy in a good camp or a bad camp? Like this, this feels about as positive as the Bible talks. I mean, a good and righteous man? Like, I feel like we're on the, the, the upslope here. And then John. Uh, John is interesting because John introduces a new player. John 19, 38 through 42. John introduces a, uh, a player that occurred earlier in John's gospel. And after these things, uh, John 19, 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You're like, oh, okay. We're getting you know, like a really well-rounded look at this guy at this point, from all these texts together. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also. What was Nicodemus' job? Anybody remember? He was on the Sanhedrin as well. So you got two members of the Sanhedrin that go and get the body of Jesus. And what is, what is Nicodemus through? Who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weights, what the ESV says. Like, do y'all remember when we cracked the lid of that little, like that tiny little, and it was like, whoo, we're going to let this air out for it. You haul up with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. You are going to take care of whatever scent is going on, wherever you are, right? So, but, but think about this. What has just been done to the body of Jesus Christ, right? It has been beaten. It's been, it's been pierced. It's been crucified. It's been bloodied. It's been, I mean unbelievable you it's 
probably not going to smell the greatest at this point, right? It's been spit on. I mean, it's just all these horrible, horrible things. And then the last thing that John tells us that we don't find in Mark uh, is verse 41. Now, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So in case you're wondering, like, well, like, what does nearby mean? Well, probably somewhere between 75 and 100 yards. Like, we're, we're not talking, yeah, we had to go three miles. No, 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 no. Like, crazy, crazy close. All right, so with, with all of that as kind of a backdrop, now let's, let's keep going with verse 43 in Mark chapter 15. All right, so Joseph of Arimathea, so we have a little more about him. So he's a secret disciple of Jesus. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's got a new tomb. It's not been used before. And Mark says, a respected member of the council who was, and this is the imperfect tense, he was repeatedly, he was repeatedly himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now, this is a, a, like a Jewish euphemism for had one eye out for who the Messiah was. Okay, so I'm looking for the kingdom of God that is going to come and is going to rule and reign and throw off these Romans because we're tired of the Romans, right? This is just not good. So he was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate. So why would he need to take courage to go to Pilate? He's calling himself out, right? So what, what has Jesus just been convicted of? He's convicted of blasphemy and... And he's crucified between two seditionists, right? So he's, he's publicly associated with people who are opposing Rome. Like, this is dangerous. Yes, ma'am. Uh, this is true. This is very true. This, was, this would have been very unusual for someone to have died this quickly on the cross, right? And this underscores, again, the thing, you know, all these things Mark doesn't explicitly stay. You know, the cross didn't kill Jesus. Jesus laid his life down when he was ready to lay his life down. The cross was the mechanism by which Jesus chose to lay his life down. But the cross itself didn't kill Jesus. Jesus gave up his life for us when he was ready to give up his life. Uh, amazingly enough, with enough time for all of this stuff to take place, and fulfill the law itself, which he was fulfilling himself while he was, I mean, it's just this, you know, like this inception thing, you're like, what in the world, this is crazy complicated. So yeah, so he takes courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked, now, I'm going to give you a second, so what do we know about Pilate? All the religious leaders in Mark's gospel are weak, weak, weak leaders, and basically, anytime any of them get asked anything, they always acquiesce. And if you want to see one example, one characteristic of a weak leader, a weak leader never says no. And everything Pilate is asked for, Pilate gives. Because it's about the show. It's about the public. I don't want to look weak in public. I don't want, to, I want my status to remain high. This is important. So he asked, and this, this word, the first four times this word is used in Mark's gospel, it's used when Herod is asked for the head of John the Baptist. So we, we kind of see this hat tip toward 
like where there's a connection between what's going on with Pilate and what went on with Herod, which connects Jesus and John the Baptist, which they were cousins, so it's kind of cool. So he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And then the ESV leaves out a word, the word but or and. And then Pilate was surprised. Those are both there. But the words to hear are not in the original. The, the word for that is actually from the Greek word I, which means whether or if. And then there's two Greek words, even now and dead. So I, a lot of other Bible translations take this verse in a different direction. And I think they probably do a truer job relative to the original text, especially because of the next verse that is almost verbatim what this verse could have been translated as. You could have translated this as, Pilate was surprised if he was already dead. There's not really a, a to hear in there. So I don't want to make too big a deal about it because you're really not going to stumble too much on this. But And summoning the centurion. So who was the centurion? Remember the centurion's the guy facing the cross. He watched the whole thing happen. So you, got, you have a, a male Roman leader whose testimony would have been like you, you're going to believe this guy right he's absolutely he's absolutely going to be believed uh, summoning the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead which is I think actually a better translation to verse 43 and when he learned from the centurion and and the the words that he was all that he was dead are actually not in the original when he learned from the centurion that that he was dead was the implied part of what he learned he granted, and the word here is to, uh, it's almost like a, a, a gracious gift type of a thing. Like, I'm being magnanimous when I do this thing for you here, right? Uh, these are also the words, this word granted uh, is a very typical word that would have shown up in an official Roman document that would have recorded the decision of a ruler. So, so Mark kind of transitions over to this uh, we would call it legalese today. Like, oh, he kind of switched into more formal language, which implies that there was some type of a, a, a documentation of what had occurred here. So he granted the what? The corpse. You see how Mark doesn't use body? He uses corpse. And this is a very specific Greek word for a no longer living human being. Because Mark is drilling down on the concept that Jesus Christ has died. He's going to put this in here as many, like, we've got to be crystal clear about this. So he uses a, a really interesting word here, and it's the exact same word in 629 that's used to reference John the Baptist's dead body. So again this connection between John the Baptist and Jesus that we see. So when he learned from the centurion, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph, at this point, and go. <laughs> right? He, we we got to be moving. <laughs> we got to be rolling here. Because Mark actually describes Joseph bought a linen shroud. You're like, well, he had to leave the governor's headquarters 
go to a different part of town, purchase a linen shroud, get back to the governor's, just outside the gate of the governor's headquarters was Golgotha, uh, and probably very close to that, um, around just to the south would have likely been where the tomb was. So Joseph bought a linen shroud, and I, uh, if I ever wrote a snarky commentary on the Bible, I would title it, Linen Legends and Other Things That Are Not About the Fish. Because we love to chase all sorts of stuff that really fundamentally has almost nothing to do with the main narrative of the story. If you remember back to Mark 14, 50, I think it's 51 and 52, uh, the follower of Jesus who's wearing the linen nightgown and they, they, the guards grab him and he runs off and they're holding the nightgown and they're like, dude, that was weird, okay. He's like streaking back to Jerusalem. I mean, this is, this is very strange here, right? And there's all kinds of theories about who was he and who, and nobody says. So you know what? Leave it alone. And then what's the formal fancy name for this linen shroud as it's referred to today in common society? The Shroud of Trin, right? Well, this is, the, this is the linen cloth that Jesus was wrapped in, and when his body left, his image went through, and we can see the picture of this like, garbage, guys. Just garbage, okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say any of this stuff survives. Right? So just let's, let's just back way off the extra-biblical, non-canonical approaches here. And not about a fish is because Jonah's not about a fish. It's just not about a fish, right? about the providence of God and the inability to run away from the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. It's all about God. It's not about Jonah. Jonah's a prop. Fish is a prop. It's about God. There we go. All right. I got that all out of my system now. So Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down. Do you remember back in 1536? Not the year, the Mark, 1536. Sorry. It's like... I'm not a historian. I have to go reference this stuff. <laughs> in 1536, the, the people watching the crucifixion says, maybe Elijah will come and take him down. Nope. That was Joseph's job. And Joseph did his job. Taking him down and wrapped him in a linen shroud. Now, the Madrash says that a very specific set of things have to happen before a Jew is to be buried. The body has to be washed. You don't, you don't bury a dirty body. You wash the body, you wrap it in a linen cloth, and then you anoint the body with spices and ointments and all sorts of things. And this is not as we would uh, take a, a corpse to the Who's the person that goes and puts the chemicals in the body so that it looks good to the mortician? Thank you. Uh, this is not a mortician-type chemicals. This is specific, specifically and explicitly to cover up the smell of the decomposition. Like, that's what all these spices are for. This is not about preservation. Because like, they're, they're actually waiting on the body to decompose in the tomb. So they go in, gather up the bones, put the bones in a box, put somebody else in the tomb. Right? This is the process. So they wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. Whose tomb? Joseph's tomb, right? Yes. This word tomb shows up uh, two other times in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 5, verse 3. 
I want you to look at this one. This one will make your skin crawl just a little bit. 5-3, sorry. Yes. In 5-2 it says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. When Jesus was resurrected, where did he happen to be? In the tomb. This is where if we were making a movie about this, there would have been a dun-dun-dun, some kind of a foreshadowing music when the narrator is reading this part back in Mark chapter 5. Because Mark is using this word to tie back that when Jesus goes to dead places, life happens. Which is critically important for us. Because we were dead in our sin and trespasses. And when Jesus comes to us, life happens. Right? This is... Mark's slicker than we give him credit for sometimes. You can do a lot with a little. In the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Back in Mark 15 now, sorry. And he rolled a stone against the entrance. And you might be thinking, was he really strong or like what? Well, Nicodemus was there. And at this explicit point in history, a cool new trend had just emerged with stones and tombs. Because you needed to put something in front of the tomb to keep grave robbers and animals out. Right? And up to this point in history, tombs would have had uh, would have the rock... Uh, that you would have rolled in front of the tomb would have been on a flat surface. And at this point in history, this neat little trend started to occur where the rock was put on a slanted surface so that it was very easy for one or two people to roll the stone into position, but it would have been shockingly difficult for one or two people to roll the stone out of position because you're going uphill and it's in a groove also cut into the rock. Now, there's only a handful of tombs like this, but they all date to the exact time of Jesus Christ, which I think is kind of cool. So, there we go. So, he rolls the stone against the entrance of the tomb, and then we get to, again, a critical part of the chain of custody. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And this is going to be critical because they're going to need to be able to go back to that spot and testify that he's not here. Because we've got several witnesses that can testify that Jesus died. And a very small number of witnesses that can testify that Jesus was buried. But if you've got the same witnesses that can testify that he rose again, well, now, we've got, we've got a whole different story on our hands at this point. Like, this is, this is unbelievable. And I'll say it again, I love the fact that God puts into the responsibility of these female disciples the testimony of the resurrection and the burial of Jesus Christ. Females who at that time in history would not have been able to testify in court because this is a woman and you, this, that's not what women do, right? It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. All right, so let's do some uh, application and personalizations. 
So application number one, uh, like what's the point? Let's not miss the great, big, overarching, massive, gigantic point. Jesus died and was buried. The evidence is overwhelming, right? Like this is the point of this particular text. Jesus died and was buried. So what do we do with that? I would say repent and believe in the gospel. Because <laughs> he's not dead. So, like, who else do you want to listen to but the guy who walks out of the grave? <laughs> what else are you waiting for? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, honestly, what else are you waiting for? He walks out of the grave. Cheering. I love it. That was perfect timing. <laughs> you guys online can't hear this, but they're, they're celebrating something upstairs. And that was like, yes, that's exactly right. All right. Application number two, uh, following Jesus takes courage. Joseph of Arimathea risked quite a bit, I would argue, to go and have this conversation with Pilate. I didn't even talk about if you touch a dead body, what are you? You're unclean. What was the next day? Sabbath, he wouldn't have gotten to participate in the Sabbath activities. Like, for a member of the Sanhedrin not to be seen, particip- I mean, this is, he and Nicodemus both. Like, they, they might have been able to hide the conversation with Pilate. They might have been able to hide the, com- the idea that they buried Jesus. But they were unclean. And at the same time, cleaner than they'd ever been. So, what do we do with that? Uh, be courageous. Be courageous. And not in some kind of a, you know, look at me, I'm so awesome, da, da, da. No, 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 no. For Jesus and the truthfulness and the accuracy of the gospel. Right? That's what we are being courageous about. All right, so next time we get together, which is in two weeks, because next week is Easter at Coolidge. Woo-hoo. Look at you about that. Uh, we'll start prepping for Mark chapter 16. Those handouts are uh, on the table. They're also online at OurSundaySchool.com. But uh, let's ask our question that we ask each week. Uh, what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? Gosh, I skipped so much stuff this morning. It was so good. Yes, sir. I'm gonna, you, you said that so well, I'm just going to repeat it as verbatim as I can get it. It's always the people who are doing the little stuff behind the scenes who make stuff work. Yes. Be courageous in our service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What else? What's God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? Yes, ma'am.
I love how you say that. Jesus, of course, was fulfilling prophecy. He's just like, like this nonchalant thing that because he's just Jesus. That's what he does, right? It's just amazing. It's, yes, he was absolutely. Praise the Lord. Yes, that's right. Yes. He was choosing to do this out of love for us. Amen to that. Amen and amen. Let's stop there. That's a good thought to meditate on today. He was choosing to do this for us. Amen. All right, so you should have a weekly update on your table. Uh, So if you would, make sure your names are at the bottom of that. Pray over any sections that you would uh, like to pray over. Hello to everybody online. I think I forgot to say hello to you this morning. I was so excited about Mark 15. So there's that. Uh, and if you would, I would appreciate, so a special prayer request from me this week. Um, I would appreciate uh, your prayers as we begin to work on, let's say begin. <laughs> Julie's like, not quite. Here's the first 110 pages of it, uh, Philippians. Uh, so I have some neat ideas. I would love your prayers as we work to uh, get those fleshed out and make them uh, easily consumable and resources that could help our Sunday school. So so with that, thanks for coming today. That's the lesson. And uh, once you have prayed, you are free to go and to worship this one who fulfills prophecy, who loves us, who laid his life down, and the evidence is overwhelming that he is the Messiah. Thank you, Jesus. What a Savior. Amen. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.